want to say a, a welcome to those of you who are watching online today. If you woke up sick or if you've been sick for a few weeks, um, we're grateful that you can watch online and uh, participate in the service today. I want to remind you as well that next Sunday, Roger Stays is going to be offering um, an adult class during the 930 service on the book, The Good and Beautiful God. If faith is new to you and you're trying to learn more, if you're kind of looking for some real practical ways to, to grow in your faith, then this is going to be a perfect class for you. You can sign up at the Welcome Center. Just leave your name and your email, and we would love to have you. You can come to church at 930, go to the class, and then come on here and participate in the, in the worship service. So check that out. Uh, so today we're going to start a very short a three-week series um, on relationships, but really specifically looking uh, most of the time at helping marriages. And I'm excited and reluctant to do so today, and I'll tell you why. I'm excited because I believe that the Scripture's teaching on marriage is the best advice you can get for having a healthy marriage, and that the things that we're going to look at will be really, really helpful to you and will lead to your relationship uh, flourishing and, and growing. I also believe that God wants your marriage to be good, that he wants it to be good and to be strong. And I also know today that there's some of you who are at a crossroads in your relationships. And uh, down this path is we're giving up. We've been working at it and working at it, but it's been difficult and we've been struggling and we just can't seem to find a way forward. And so we're kind of in those conversations now. And for on this road here is, you know what, we'll give it one more year. And my hope is um, through some means that the Lord might speak to you over these next few weeks and encourage you to keep going. And, and to fight for it, and to work at it, and to dig deep and figure out maybe what are some of the underlying challenges. And so I'm hopeful for, for some of you in this series. But I'm also reluctant, because I realize that not all of you are married. Some of you are single. Some of you are single again. Some of you are widowed. I know that some of the things that we're going to be talking about might feel difficult, might feel challenging. I think I'm already getting emails from the 930 service. So, uh, but I would ask that you would extend some grace um, to us over these few weeks in this regard. In, in 10 years, I think we've really only done one or two other series on marriage. And um, there are some, I think, opportunities for us to encourage marriages over these weeks. And my hope is that there'll be something even in the content that's helpful to you in any relationship that you're a part of. And I believe that to be true today. And we need to talk about marriage because um, it's challenging. And if you read from our culture, marriage is kind of presented as being an irrelevant idea. Comedian Chris Rock once said, Would you rather be single and lonely or married and bored? These are your great options, right? If marriage was an airline, you wouldn't get on it, right? Ladies and gentlemen, we're now boarding a flight that has a 50% chance of actually getting to its destination, right? Um, that's, those are the statistics amongst divorce right now, about 50%. If marriage was a stock, you wouldn't buy it. You know, here's a stock option. If you can invest your money in it, and in five years, there's a 50% chance it's absolutely worthless. No one would get in on that. Maybe you've heard the story of Winston Churchill, and he had a lady friend, not his wife, but Lady Astor. They worked together. And they got on each other's nerves, um, and were in constant debate on a number of items. One day, Lady Astor said to Churchill, if you were my husband, I would poison your coffee. To which Churchill responded, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> if you're getting married, thinking about getting married, if you're, if you're in a serious relationship right now, um, and you're wanting to have some godly counsel and some godly instruction, that I hope that over these next number of weeks, that we can kind of redeem 
um, redeem this, this idea of marriage for us. We're going to talk today, just kind of get it kicked off. Next week, we're going to talk specifically about communication, which is the lifeblood of any relationship. And then in week three, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to have a panel discussion and talk about what are some of the habits that will help you go the distance. So we're looking forward to it. But today, let's talk about, let's just get us started. The Bible's vision for marriage can be captured in a single word, and that word is oneness. The Bible's vision for marriage is captured in one single word, and that word is oneness. It's a phrase that's found in the very first marriage that took place between Adam and Eve in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2. The passage is playful. God has created Adam, and he's looking for a suitable partner for him. And he can't seem to find one anywhere, so the scripture says that he created one. And let me just read for you Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed the place with flesh. When the Lord God had made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, he brought her to the man. This is the first wedding. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's a wordplay in the Hebrew there between man and woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, or one. There's that word again. This passage is taught again by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5. But the scriptures present the whole idea of marriage as this idea of oneness. And so let me give you another analogy just to kind of picture it. Picture two lanes of traffic merging into one. Okay, you've got a lane of traffic here and a lane of traffic here, and they're merging together to form a brand new lane of traffic. This is the image of oneness. Not roomies where you have your life and I have mine and our lives overlap and it's convenient. Not my life plus you or your life plus me. A new life. A brand new start together. I'm going to take my life and I'm going to merge it into your life like two gears coming together to form something new. And it sounds so beautiful. Even in this passage, Adam quotes poetry to his new bride. And it's beautiful here because sin hasn't entered the world yet. But when you're standing in the living room and there's in the middle of a big fight because she's merged too quickly into your lane and he's merged too quickly into her and she's, you know, pushing her off into the ditch, it's another story. And God presents to us this image of oneness. When two people choose to come together and commit themselves wholly, body, mind, and soul, and covenant before God in a lifelong relationship. This is the image that the scripture gives to us. And this is where sex comes in. If I was asking you what word you thought most best described marriage, I know some of you were thinking about this. It's almost like God says, after Adam and Eve have pledged themselves to be together, body, mind, and spirit, after they've made this lifelong commitment to each other, God says, you know, we've got to come up with some activity for these two to kind of symbolize or enact this commitment that already is in place. And if I'm being really honest with you this morning, we can say that the church has done a horrible job most times talking about sex to people. Most of us, if you, especially if you grew up, maybe you went up, grew up in church, or maybe you grew up in youth group, or maybe you went, all you heard was that sex was bad, it's bad, it's bad, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then on your wedding night, you have to kind of flick a switch, and suddenly it's good and great. And it's a hard transition for some people to make. Sex becomes the physical expression of a commitment that's already been made. 
And the scriptures suggest to us here that the order is important. First comes the commitment, the willingness to be vulnerable emotionally, physically, and spiritually with the person and to commit to that person for a lifelong. And then sex becomes the activity that celebrates the commitment that's already in place. And when we sleep with someone that we have no intention of being committing to, committed to, it's like we're writing checks that we have no intention of cashing. You're saying to the other person with your body, I'm all in. And then it gets so confusing when emotionally and physically and financially and relationally, you aren't all in. And you hold back and you kind of have your own thing that you want to do become so hurtful. That's why sex before marriage almost cre- always creates confusion. I've been doing counseling for over 20 years with people coming into my office and telling me their story. And I've never had anybody say, you know what? Our relationship was a little confusing and then we slept together and then it got just great. It fixed everything. I've never heard anybody say that. Now, some of you are pushing back on me right now and I'm saying this too. You might not like this kind of teaching for you, but I bet you like it for your daughters or your nieces or your granddaughters. Now, some of you would say, too, you're just, you know, kind of following the old preaching script. Well, I would suggest to you, if you don't like what I have to say, go watch Jerry Seinfeld, his episode where he and Elaine, best friends, decide why, who are wrestling with the question, why can't we, you know, be best friends, but also just kind of have sex on the side, right? It's just physical. Why can't we do this? And then the whole episode is built around the fact that it just doesn't work. You can't do it. Back to our image, merging two lanes of traffic into one. If you're going to merge two lanes of traffic into one, there better be some rules. There better be some guidelines or it's going to be a disaster. And scripture gives us so much godly counsel as you seek to merge two lives together. So I'm just going to give you two kind of guidelines, rules today that I think will be helpful to you as you consider this. The first is this, rule of the road number one. Oneness requires a Jesus kind of love. Oneness requires a Jesus kind of love. Every couple that I meet with to get married talks about love. But they almost never have the same definition of what that love is. They hold very different definitions of what love really looks like. A recent grad student at the University of Pittsburgh decided to write an essay outlining how pop music has shaped the definition of love in our culture. And she summed it up by saying this, love now, the new definition of love is, it's all about getting what I want. I'm experiencing love when I'm with the person I want, who looks the way I want them to look, who believes what I want them to believe, who does what I want them to do when I want them to do it. Love is ultimately when I am getting my way. And this is pervasive. And this kind of love couldn't be any more opposite than the kind of love that Jesus has demonstrated to us. In a powerful and raw moment the night before Jesus is crucified, he says he gives to his disciples a new commandment. Now, when you and I hear him use that word commandment, we don't even think anything of it. But for the good Jewish boys that were sitting around the table that night, when they heard Jesus say a new commandment, what they heard him say is we're bringing out the Ten Commandments and we're scratching in a new one, number 11. And you're thinking, how can you add a commandment? But Jesus was adding to them a commandment. And he said this, it started this way, love one another. And immediately, each of the disciples and each of us kind of come up with our own ideas and our own definition of what love really is. 
But Jesus clarifies it, and he says this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is the definition of love. That we love other people the same way Jesus has loved us. You love your friends this way. You love your family this way. You love your coworkers this way. You love your neighbors this way. You love your spouse or your, your, your significant other this way. And how did Jesus love his disciples? How did Jesus love Peter, who denied him three times? How did Jesus love Matthew, the tax collector, who was the sellout to the Roman guard? How did he love Nathaniel, who made fun of the town that Jesus was from? And then in the same passage, it said that Jesus got down and he washed the disciples' feet. And in this simple phrase and in this simple action, Jesus tells and shows the disciples this is what Jesus' people do. You want to have a Christian marriage? It's not getting married in the church and it's not having the pastor preside over the ceremony. A Christian marriage is marked by people extending this kind of love to each other and to their neighbors and to their community. Not just when it's convenient, not just when it benefits you, and not just when we feel like it. But letting this kind of love shape who we are and shape how we treat the people around us. And this kind of love is more concerned with giving than it is with getting. It's so easy for any relationship to turn into math and scales, comparing how much you got to do and how many nights you got to be out and how much money you spent and how much freedom you have. It becomes all of this comparison. It becomes all about math, and everybody knows that math is bad. And any relationship that comes down to just keeping track of how much you had and how much I had is going to lose because it becomes all about getting. And when we start to experience and employ the love that Jesus has given to us, you will become more concerned with giving than you will about receiving. Let me just say this this morning as well. Oftentimes when things are difficult in a relationship and you're tempted to bail or you're secretly dreaming of bailing, the dream that you're having about that other person is not the opportunity to give love to somebody. You're not sitting there thinking, man, I, can't, I would love to go and leave this person and go be with that person so I could just love them and care for them and look after them and serve them. No. All you can picture is getting. And you know what? The other person is thinking the exact same thing about you. And two people who are only concerned with getting in a relationship is a recipe for disaster. And the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates to us is the kind of love that becomes obsessed with giving love to the other person. So let me just make this practical for us. If you're currently in a relationship where you're keeping score and keeping track and feeling frustrated, then I want you to ask yourself this question. What would unconditional love do in this moment? And do it. What would unconditional love require of me in this moment? And do it. Rule number one experiencing and sharing the kind of love that only Jesus can give. The second rule for merging two lives into one is mutual submission. 
And I know some of you are saying right now, look, Rob, I brought my girlfriend here for the very first time, and she's not even sure about this whole Jesus thing, and you're going to talk about this? Yes. But just hang, I think, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Just, just bear with me for a second. I want to read for you a passage out of Ephesians chapter 5 that is shaped by Jesus' teaching in John 13 about loving one another as Jesus has loved us. Where, Jesus, where Paul takes this and tries to apply it to all the different relationships that we have in our life. And he says this, and I'm going to read it out of a different translation just to try to catch your ears here. Ephesians 5 says this. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives likewise submit to your husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out in her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. Now, our modern ears, when we hear some of that, there's a pushback. And even as I read it, sometimes I cringe because you know what it makes me think of? makes me think of times when some guy calls to meet with me and he brings his girlfriend or his wife into my office and he wants me to teach this passage to her. And he's passive-aggressive and he's looking for a Bible verse to justify his lazy jerk behavior. And as you can see, I still need a few more therapy sessions so I can move on from this. Because nowhere in Scripture... Do you ever see Jesus use the authority that is given to him to domineer or to control or to belittle anybody? When Jesus meets with the disciples, you don't see him snapping his fingers and say, you know, I expect there to be supper on the table when I come into this room. There better be a, a coffee ready for me when I come home. Never. Jesus' posture is always that of a servant. Submission means two things, really. First, it means surrender. If two lives are going to merge together into one brand new life, somebody needs to surrender. Both parts need to surrender. Back to our traffic illustration. If two lanes are coming into one lane together, all the cars need to surrender at some point, right? Or else what do you have? You have Sims Corner, okay? If no one stops and no one gives way and no one slows down, you have absolute chaos. When Jill and I are meeting with new couples who are looking to get married, we spend a fair bit of time talking about this image of oneness and surrender and what does it mean to, to submit to one another. And whenever a new couple get married and move into their own apartment together, there's all kinds of challenges because you had your way and she had hers. And especially when you start to set up house together, there's ways that you used to set things up and there's ways that she used to set things up. Uh, the example that we talk about a fair bit because it illustrates it well is, you know, in the house that Jill grew up, they kept all of their small spoons in a little cup on the dining room table. Isn't that weird? <laughs> My family put them where they belonged, in the silverware drawer. So I remember when we were setting up our apartment in Wolfville, we had this moment where we're trying to figure out where are the spoons going to go in our apartment. Well, I'm happy to tell you that um, 
Sometimes compromise is required in order to keep the peace. It's true of the little things. It's true of the big things. It's true at the very beginning of a relationship, and it's true in every chapter thereafter. The need for each other to surrender at points for the, for the sacredness and for the strength of the marriage. But submission also means giving permission to the other person to lead. God has given each of you gifts and abilities, and he wants you to use them. And so your role in the relationship is to help the other person flourish, to make sure that they have all the opportunities to succeed in doing the things that God has called them to do, and vice versa. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Philippians where it says that Christ came and he humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant. And we ought to extend that posture to each other to allow the other person to use the gifts that God has given them that they might flourish in this life. And then we will be stronger as we do that together. Can you imagine for a second a relationship where there wasn't a constant battle about who is right and who is wrong and needing to have the last word? Can you imagine for a second being quiet and allowing the other person to lead and allowing them to flourish. Can you imagine if every issue didn't become a tug of war or a power struggle or a control thing, but instead I'm going to submit for the good of our relationship because this is your strength and you should lead in this area. And can you imagine if the person that you're in relationship with is asking themselves on a regular basis, how can I love my spouse with the same love that Christ has loved me? Would it make everything better instantly? No. But has the power to renew and transform a relationship, whether it be a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, a friendship, a friendship with a coworker. Jesus cares about your relationships. And he wants them to be good. They will never be easy, but he would love to see them thrive. Next week, we're going to talk about communication, and we hope that you'll be back for it. Let's pray. Lord, today we pray that you would just fill our hearts and our minds with this image of how Jesus has loved us. And that it would wash away all of our temptations to be in charge and to be in control and to have power or to have our way. And Lord, that it would just begin to soften our hearts and give us an imagination for what it would look like in all of our relationships to extend this kind of love to other people. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would tell the story of your love, that in the way that we treat people, people that we agree with, people that we disagree with, that we would be able to extend this same love. And we pray ultimately that our relationships would tell your story as we submit ourselves ultimately to you. And we pray this in your name.